We are ending a series today. We're actually finishing a series today called Starting Point. And, and here's the reality. Um, this, is a, this is a curriculum that we go through with small groups sometimes, about once every year, every other year. We take a group through something called Starting Point. It's great, eight, nine weeks uh, of curriculum that we go through. And this year we thought about it, and then we thought, you know what, I'd rather just do it all together as a church. Let's have this faith conversation together as a church. And so uh, that's what we basically did, uh, although we're not doing eight or nine weeks. We actually combined it, and this is the fourth week, and we're finishing it today. But hopefully this has been encouraging to you. Hopefully this has been uh, something that, you know, if it's brand new for you, great. If it's just a reminder for you, awesome. I know every week I've had great conversations with folks that there's something in there just reminds us as we continue to follow God to make sure that we have the right starting points uh, in our life, all right? And here's where we've been, just a very quick recap. We talked about the fact that our faith has a starting point. Your faith had a starting point. And for most people, it was given, it was a faith given to us by someone else. So it was maybe a, a, a parent, a grandparent, a, a, someone, an adult in your life. It was a church. It was an organization maybe that gave you sort of some information and gave you a faith. And, and, and the point wasn't, that wasn't bad. That's how all of us, majority of us get you know, introduced to the faith, but it was supposed to progress beyond that. And for a lot of people, the struggle has been that their starting point um, has kind of remained there. It, it kind of remains in this, someone told me so God, meaning that it's, it's, it's kind of their understanding of God is what someone else kind of explained to them. Um, or they're caught up in a Bible tells me so religion, which is just basically using Bible verses and using the Bible uh, to kind of create a system of rules, create a system of, of do's and don'ts and shoulds and shouldn'ts and things like that. And it's not, again, not that either one of those two things is bad, especially early on when we got to teach children uh, and, and help them, but uh, it's supposed to be, progress beyond this. And this can't be necessarily your starting point or, or it's not a good place for adults to restart their faith or to restart where they are. And so we've been talking about over the last several weeks, just what did it look like for the early church? What did it look like for people in their starting point in Christianity? And what was the starting point of our faith? Well, here's the questions we went through. And I've kind of posed these as questions. The starting point is who is Jesus? That's not only the starting point of our faith, but that's a good starting point for everybody in terms of where they were as a follower of Christ. The second week we talked about, do we trust Jesus? And that's primarily in the context of, do we trust Jesus to solve the sin problem that we have? Like to solve the dilemma that we could not solve on our own. And we have to understand, like, like are we really putting our faith, our trust in Jesus to, to do that? And then last week we talked a lot about that. Someone told me so God, the idealistic God, the boyfriend God, the on-demand God, you know, the, the gods that don't exist in the Bible, you know, but the ones we make up. Is our faith actually anchored in the God of grace, the, 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 the way in which Jesus describes God? Now, God's many things. He's not pin, pigeonholed, but the, what seems to be from beginning to end in terms of what we see in his word is that he is a God of grace and, and our understanding of grace. And so here's the verse we ended with last week in a different translation. I'm going to read a different translation today just to kind of kick us off today. I thought it was a great place for us to start. Um, this is Ephesians 2. It says, God saved you by his grace when you first believed or when you believed. That's that you're by grace, you're saved through faith. That's that same trans, uh, verse, but a different translation. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God, right? He goes on to say, salvation is not a reward for good things you've done. So none of us can boast about it. Like salvation is not something righteousness, right standing with God isn't something that we did and that we achieve. He goes on to say, we are God's masterpiece, right? He, he created us. 
He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Like there's a purpose in this. And he, he, he created us to do these things that he planned for all of us. And again, going back to that foundation of grace, like anchored in the grace of God, that is what he's done for us, not necessarily what we do, but what he has done. Now, last week I got several questions. So I'm just going to paint this picture for you because we're going to, this is what we're making the last week. Uh, several questions where, where people struggle with grace. All right. They struggle with, with, either the understanding of grace, the modeling of grace, the misapplication of grace, um, in terms of the Christian walk, the Christian life. And let me just paint this picture for you. Tell me if you've seen this as well. So the questions I got last week were more along the lines of, well, what, what about the people who aren't, who aren't living the life that God planned for them? You know, that kind of thing. Who, what about the Christians? I use the quote, air quotes uh, on purpose. Right? What about the Christians uh, that sort of like, they, they, they look like everybody else. They sort of just do what everybody else does. They don't really seem to be living that life that, that, that's there, but they still claim the grace of God. You know, they drink a little bit too much far too often, you know, and they gossip too much and they, and they, they hold up, they, they live selfish lives and they, you know, they're, they're full of bitterness and hatred and they judge people. And, you know, they're just, you just start talking, but they all call themselves Christian. And then they hear a, a message about grace and forgiveness. And they're like, oh, thank God I'm forgiven. I'm, you know, grace. Anybody else ever struggle with that? Is that just, just, the, just the three people that I talked to? Okay, good. All right. Now, the problem with this is not only, again, is it a misunderstanding of grace and a misapplication of grace, but it's also the thing that ends up happening is that then Christians, maybe some popular Christians, maybe some Christians online or churches, begin to really kind of focus and over overcorrect to focus on the shoulds and the shouldn'ts of Christianity. And they really focus on the behaviors and the actions and what it looks like and try to model it and what you have to do to be a good Christian. And, and it creates this sort of dysfunctional circle, right, of Christianity where you have people focused on the doing of things um, that doesn't seem to get them anywhere, or at least what they think they're doing, it's still going to fall short. Or they focus on the grace of things, but or, or the, you know their faith and grace in God, forgiveness of God, but they don't really change their lives. Like their lives have no effect in this. Does anybody else? Again, anybody else see this? So this is where we decided to end the series was just to understand. We have to go back to, if you will, this understanding of the tension between you know what we believe versus what we do versus our faith versus behavior. And what, how, do we, how do we solve this dilemma? Because this is not brand new, guys. This has been happening for a long, long time, as we'll look in Scripture uh, today. We're going to go back again to sort of, again, I like to start with foundational principles, huge foundational principles that I think are important for us to remember in terms of our starting point. Um, and, I, and, it, and it dawned on me that we spent three, this is a series about a conversation about faith, and over the last three weeks, we have yet to read the New Testament verse that actually defines what faith is. So I thought, well, I should probably do that today, all right? So the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament actually gives us a verse that talks about what faith looks like. What does faith mean, all right? But right before that, because it's 11, uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, right before that, he makes a statement that I think is really important. He says, we need to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, right? This belief we have, this hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful to do what he said he was going to do, to be who he said he was going to be, and, and so forth. And then he goes into chapter 11, verse 1, and says, faith is, and I want you to read these two words out loud so you guys can say them with me. Faith is what? It's confidence in what we hope for and what? And assurance 
Oh, well, we don't see. Now, this is what faith is supposed to look like. Again, this is what the New Testament author says. Hey, this is what faith is. The kind of faith that we're talking about in terms of, of the writer of Hebrews, this is what faith looks like. This is, this is the kind of faith that we're going to have. Confidence and assurance. Well, how do I get that? Right? How in the world, listen, and this, if this has never struck you, like, like this is something you're going to have a conversation with. How do you know you have the right kind of faith where you have the kind of confidence that, that Hebrews talks about? The writer of Hebrews says, when you live in a world full of evil and trouble. Like, how are you, how are you confident that this is right? How are you confident that Christianity is the right way? How are you confident that we have the right answer and, you know, it's not what the Muslims have or, or, or Islam? Like, how, do you, how are you confident that you're on the right path when there's so much injustice, there's so much evil? How, where does that confidence come from? Where does the assurance come from? Like, where, how can you be so sure while well, you live in a world filled with outcomes that, you know, are unknown? All right, you're going to pray, you're going to talk to God, but you don't know if your parents are going to be healed from cancer. You don't know if that little girl is going to be found. You don't know if this is going to happen. Does that make sense? How do you have the assurance? I mean, that's what our faith is. Well, it goes back to, the, to chapter 10. It goes back to this. Our faith is tied to and tethered to his faithfulness. All right, his faithfulness. Not, not your faithfulness. Not your faithfulness in being a good Christian, not your faithfulness in following him, because he's invited us all to follow him. But it doesn't have anything to do with your faithfulness to follow him that your faith should be tied to. And then, guys, this is a huge foundational thing. This is, this is the problem when we make it about us, right? We make the faith about us, and so our faith is tied to our ability and our faithfulness to get it right. Versus the kind of faith we're talking about, the kind of faith that, that the, the writer of Hebrews said, hey, we're going to hold to this, this faith, this, this, this belief we, we hold to, this hope, because he is the one who promised and he is the one who is faithful to his promise. Our faith is tied to his faithfulness. Before we even get to what it looks like to live this out, we have to start there. And then, great passage that talks a little bit about this, this relationship between our, our belief and, and the way we live it out, our actions, our behaviors, uh, comes from uh, the book of James in the New Testament. And this is James's brother, okay? Or, sorry, this is Jesus' brother. James is the half-brother, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the reasons I believe in the gospel, okay? I, I believe in the Bible. I believe the, the word of God is, is alive and well and inerrant. Like, I, I believe this, okay? This is, this is one of the reasons, this is one of the anchors of my faith. All right, because James, James, the brother of Jesus, all right, I don't know what it was like for you growing up, if you had any older siblings, all right, I don't know what it was like for you, but I can't fathom being Jesus' little half-brother, all right? I can't fathom living in a house where it's like, oh, James, why can't you be more like Jesus, <laughs> right? And, and, and then to think, and all, and all honestly, think about the humanity of it, and then to think that at some point, James as an adult after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that James is going to look at and, and examine the evidence and look at what's real, and he's going to surrender his life to his older brother. He's going he's to make Jesus his Lord and Savior. Guys, that's huge. Don't underestimate that. So here's James. He's an older man. He's, he's a leader in the church, especially in Jerusalem. He's a leader in the church in the movement of God, the way. 
and he's got great influence. And he writes this letter to the people of God. Now, this is a combination of primarily Jewish followers who are kind of used to the religious system of the Jewish system, but he's also, you know, understands there's Gentiles coming in, and Gentiles don't have some of those same things, but they have all a bunch of other baggage they're bringing in to the mix. And James has an issue with the church in this understanding of how faith and how our behavior and how, how, how when it comes to what we do, play a part. So the first thing I want to note is this is in chapter 1 in James. James basically says, uh, don't just listen to God's word, okay? Because they were in an environment where a lot of times the, the word of God was read to them. He said, don't just listen. To, you got to, what's the four words there? You got to what? Yeah, I don't know who wants to read that. So let's read it one more time, all right? You ready? Listen, you can't just listen to God's words. You got to what? You got to do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourself. All right? One of the words is deceiving yourself. If, if you read it, if you hear it, like I, well, we love giving you these scripture cards to take home and, and follow up with and you know, put in your Bible and go back to and read, but golly, if you don't do what it says, he's just basically like, how foolish. Like, you're, you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself with just this idea that knowledge alone is going to help you. And then he goes into verse, sorry, chapter 2, and he begins this conversation about how this is expressed in our life. So he goes, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, right? But you don't show it by your actions. You don't show it by the way you live. You don't show it in your behavior. What kind of faith? Can that faith save anyone? Like, what kind of faith is that? Can it, can it do really anything? And then he goes on to say, uh, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a great day, Right? Stay warm and eat well. Like, I know this is a little fishy, but like, you know, how, what, he's like, what good does it do if you're like, God bless you, you know, he's homeless and food, he doesn't have any food or clothing, like, hey, stay warm, you know? And then he goes on to say, but you, you don't actually give that person any food or clothing. Like, it's almost like you're saying the right thing, but, but there's something missing. What good does it do to say that and not give them food, not give them clothing? You see, faith by itself isn't enough. Now, just understand, we'll firmly state this several times in terms of your, your journey at journey, but this isn't talking about salvation or righteousness. We've already hit this over the last several weeks. Faith, he's saying faith itself is incomplete in the standpoint of how we live out our, our salvation, how we live out our lives. He said faith itself, this belief, unless it produces good deeds, unless it works itself out, unless it's expressed... It's dead and useless. Just like we talked about last week. You know, your, your, your faith is tethered to a God you've created. Like, it's, it's incomplete. Like, it's not, it's not where it needs to be. It's dead and useless. He says, someone may argue, hey, some of us have faith and some of us have good deeds, right? And this is, this is the argument of like, well, some of us, you know, know more than, know, know more than others. And we, we're focusing a little more on knowledge and belief and what's right and wrong and blah, blah, blah. And some of us are doing the work and making it happen. And he's like, you know, they're like, it's not really that important, one or the other. And, but here he says, how can you show me your faith if you don't have any good deeds? Like how, how in the world, other than you just expressing it or saying it to me, how do you show me that you, ha that you have the right kind of faith, that it's tethered to the right thing, without it showing up in your life? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. Like it's by the work that I do that you will see what my faith is tethered to, what it believes. And he goes on to say, 
Um, you say you have faith because you believe there's one God. Good for you, right? Just catch the sarcasm in, Jim, in James's voice, right? Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. Like, I don't know how else to do this, but James is being as, cl as clear as can be. Oh, you believe there's a God? Pat yourself on the back. You're at demon level 101, right? Like, th that's where you are. Oh, you believe that there's a God? Yay! Like, he's giving you nothing for that. He says, how foolish to think that that's like, can't you see your faith without good deeds is useless? Can't you see that there's a completeness to this that, that comes together in a life of those who follow Jesus, who follow after God? And then I love this because he actually gives the, this beautiful example a few verses later. He says that, that just as the body is dead without breath, so is faith dead without good works, without behavior that backs it up, without, without that. So just think about that. Just like he's basically saying, you know, you could have a body, but it doesn't, there's no life to that body without breath. And he says that you could have this faith or claim to have this kind of faith, but there's no life to this without it being expressed, without it being lived out, without it being, you know, worked out. So again, James is entering this discussion. I want you to know, it's, it's, it's not any different than it is today. He's entering this discussion with the Jews and the Gentiles and the early church, really wrestling over, well, is it faith? Like, is it what we know? Is it what we do? We, like, we know the right things? I mean, I've studied the Word of God. I know all the right stuff. I, you know, is that, is that greater than what we do? Because if you just were here for the first few weeks, you might believe that. Or is all of a sudden Matt changing his story, right? Because now it's all about what we do. It's all about how we live it out. It's all about our works and our behavior and our actions that's greater than our faith. And I just want you to hear this with a humble heart, that I, as humble as hard as I can give you. The, this argument, this argument, this argument and struggle comes from the sin of self-sufficiency. Okay? It comes from the sin of self-sufficiency. Why? Because the modern church, the modern Christian views mistaken self-sufficiency for spiritual maturity. We mistaken self-sufficiency for spiritual maturity. That if we can know all the right things and answer all the right questions and just have a seat full of knowledge and continue to feed, 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 feed our faith, that that's all we need. And we got this. Or... We can just do all the things we're supposed to do, right? Work, 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 get the right things, do all the shoulds and should not, don't do the shouldn'ts and things like that. And if we can really do well at that, then we got this. And that's the sin of self-sufficiency, right? Our only sufficiency is grace. And we only qualify for it because we don't qualify for it. Everybody with me? At that point, if your brain didn't explode, it's, it's, it's Okay. Like, it's, it's tough. This is where, guys, this is where we have to get to. We have to understand what does it mean. Like, how do we not get caught up, even internally, in this constant battle of is it what I do or is it what I believe and think? Because the life of a follower of Jesus is both. It's both. Without the tension. Without the tension. Well, what does that mean? What does it look like? How do we get there? Well, we, I'm going to give you a quick example. This is in the life of Jesus. This is an encounter in the life of Jesus. Um, 
It's in John 3. This is the one we're going to read along together. So if you want to turn in your copy of God's Word to John 3 or open up your phone app, it's not going to be on the screen. Um, we're just going to read, read along together. I want you to follow along in your Bible. Um, this is an example of an encounter that you're going to see with a guy named John the Baptist. Okay, so now this is not John who wrote the Gospel of John. That was John's the disciple of Jesus. This is John the Baptist, somebody you'll read about in the Gospels. He's a character in Jesus' life. And I don't know how else to express who John the Baptist is or the importance of John the Baptist other than to say that, you know, in my opinion, he's kind of like the Billy Graham of, of Jesus' day, okay? Everybody know who Billy Graham is when I say that? Like, most everybody knows, right? That would be the same for, for John the Baptist. Everybody knew who crazy John was out at the river baptizing people. Like, everybody knew who John the Baptist baptizer was. And, 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 and I can't even fathom what Billy Graham would have been like living at the same time that Jesus was living, right? Like, you're, you're an evangelist for Jesus, but he's also alive. So here's John the Baptist, you know, with this influence and this crowd and this ministry and so on, preparing the way for the Messiah, and the Messiah is there. He's, he's already doing his thing. Well, this is an encounter that happens, and I love the way John responds, because it really does, I think, just kind of encapsulates us, how we, where we need to get to, to not have this tension between faith and works. This is starting in uh, chapter 3. Starting in verse 22, then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and they went out to the Judean countryside. And Jesus spent some time out there with them there, baptizing people. And at this time, John the Baptist, baptizer, or John the Baptist, was baptizing at Aeon near Salim because there was plenty of water there, right? And people kept coming to him to get baptized. This was before John is thrown in prison. A debate broke out between John's disciple and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. And this is all the Jewish stuff that they were, you know, they just continued to argue with John about. But then John's disciples came over to him and said, Rabbi, uh, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, uh, he is also baptizing people. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. Well, John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it to him from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you that I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear the vows. Therefore, I am filled with the joy of his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. I'm not going to keep reading, but if you were to keep reading, it's John basically describing to his disciples what we talked about over the last few weeks, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God incarnate, and that he, he is not only this God who gives us everything, this God who marries the bride, and we're just happy to be at the wedding, right? Like, like that's, that's who this Jesus is. And he's trying to help his disciples understand, like, I know you're a little bit caught up in our baptizing ministry, you know, and, and his baptizing ministry is starting to, starting to edge in on our baptizing ministry. And he's like, but you got the wrong idea here. you got the wrong focus because it's all about him. And it needs to continue to be all about him. And he adds himself in there and a whole lot less and less about me. This is the example that I see in terms of people who really can just resolve this tension 
about their faith and, and, and their belief and their, and their right standing with God with how they live it out. Because this is the kind of faith that responds to God. This is the kind of faith that's expressed, right, with their actions, with their works, with behaviors. And what it looks like to everybody else is just humility. What everybody else sees is humility. Because it's never about us. They see humility because it's never about you. And it's never about me. And this resolves the tension as to whether or not it's what you think and know and how much you know and whether you can answer all those questions and, and whether you're doing all the right things and your faithfulness to him to be a good, good Christian. It's a response. Just, just, like, just like James said, it's, it's, it's the life of everything. It's the body with breath. It's the life of a follower of Christ that shows up and what people see and what people recognize is humility. That's the primary thing they see. Some of the translations say, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. And I think that at one level, you and I can say this and can understand why John would say this. And we could actually probably say it from a pretty high level situation. But the problem is most modern Christians don't actually believe this. They don't actually believe this. Because we're just, we're so swimming in a culture that's all about us. All about us individually, all about us and our rights and our entitlements and so forth and so on. Like we're swimming in a, just a crushing stream of, 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 of us. And yet, how we're called to live our lives as followers of Christ is supposed to be that he's supposed to increase and we're supposed to decrease. It's supposed to be greater and greater and greater about him. And less and less and less about us. And so some of the questions I get, and some of the conversations I have, tell me if this is familiar to you, is that people just start to struggle then with, well, what about my job? Does that not even matter? Like, what about, what about raising my family? Like, does raising my family matter? What about my passions? What about, like, the things I want to do and the desires of my heart? Like, does, does that even matter if it's all supposed to be, you know, like, we just struggle. We, we have a new tension that's just like, ah, what about, you know, what about my desire? What about my goals in life? Am I even supposed to make goals? And here, here's the answer to the question. Of course it matters. <laughs> of course raising your family matters. Of course your job matters. Of course your passions matter. But they matter in light of him increasing and you decreasing. See, your job matters because, you know, Paul tells us in Colossians that everything that we do in word and deed, we're going to do it with excellence. We're going to do it all for the glory of God, and we're going to give thanks to God while we do it, right? Like, our jobs matter, but our own jobs really only matter in light of the fact that it points to him, that our lives point to him. You know, you know, raising your family matters, right? We're supposed to raise our kids in the admonition of the Lord. Like, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to do that. But what matters about your family is primarily whether or not they come to faith in Christ. 
Your passions matter, guys. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. You know, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Your desires matter, but your desires, okay, are always going to be lined up with your motives because God sees the actual desire of your heart, not the one you stated and you wrote out that looked really nice and Christian. Like, he, he knows the actual desires of your heart, and if they're all about you, good luck. Like, good luck with that, Right? You can't, you can't go to the name it and claim it religion like, well, you know, you have, you have not because you ask not, so I'll ask. And here's it. And you miss all the verses about the fact that it's got to be his will. It's got to be aligned with his will. It's got to be aligned with his glory. It's got to be something for you in terms of goals. It's got to be something that aligns, that exalts him. Why? Because he's got to come greater and greater, and I've got to become less and less. That's it. Doesn't mean I'm not supposed to live out this stuff and do my best and try and like, of course you are. But if I wake up every day and I just understand the fact that it's all about him, and guys, I hate to say it this way, it's never going to be about me. It's never going to be about you. Okay, I, just, I just want you to hear that from, from your pastor who struggles with it the same way you do. Okay, Because there are, there are a lot of mornings I get up and, buddy, it's all about me. Right? I wake up, I check my social media feed, I look to see who said some things about me, or who liked me, or who hearted me, or you know, who did this. I look to get my email, are people happy with me, or this is happening for me, and are the things I want to do happening for me? Like, I truck into the day just like everybody else, and I'm telling you, there's, a, there's something that comes, a deep breath that comes in, in continuing to come back to our starting point and understand that in light of who he is, in light of him, like, that's, that's all that matters. And yes, my jobs matter, and raising my kids matter, and those things matter, but, but they matter in light of him because he becomes greater and greater. He has to increase, and I have to decrease. So here's the best encouragement I can give you as we close out the series. How do we make sure that every day our starting point starts off with the right thing, right? How do we make sure that we get that starting point right every day? Well, I actually believe the starting point of our faith and the starting point of many people's faith and journey is the same question we can ask every day ourselves. Just a reminder of who is Jesus. When you wake up every morning, just ask the question, who is he? Who is he? Because the answer to this question is going to determine whether he's becoming greater and greater and whether you're becoming less and less. Here's how Jesus did it. This is just to show you, Jesus had fun with this too, right? Jesus is, is talking to his disciples. This is, you're going to find this in the Gospel of Matthew. He's talking to his disciples, and he literally asked them. He, he goes on to say, he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he said, hey, who do people say the Son of Man is? Right? He, and he's like, what, what's the word on the street about me? Who, who, do they, who do they say that I am? And I love this. Well, they replied, I don't know. Some say you're John the Baptist, which is weird because John the Baptist was alive. Right? Like some say you're John the Baptist, and... And that's weird because you're not. He's over there. Uh, some say Elijah. Now, this had to do with the Passover and a lot of their history, right? They would, the Passover, part of the Passover was like, go out and look for Elijah. See if Elijah showed back up, you know, come on. And, and um, so they thought he was Elijah, you know, came back. And some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Like some of them are like, well, maybe it's reincarnation. Maybe that's real, you know. Maybe he's that, you know. Maybe that's who you are. And, and then <laughs> he asked them a question, yeah, but who, who, do, you, who do you say I am? See, Jesus was just setting them up, like, oh, okay, what does everybody else say? 
And then he looks at him and just says, well, what about you? You answer this question, who is Jesus? Who, who, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, man, you got to love Peter, right? First guy out of the gate, always, always talking first, right? Well, Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Peter's like, I know, I know, I know. You're, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. Whew. Right? I got it. And, and wouldn't it be great if Jesus, just for our benefit, would just go, good job, Peter, gold star for you. Wouldn't it be great if he did that? Because that's how we respond sometimes, right? Good job, Peter. No, Jesus doesn't even do that. He does say good job. He says, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. He's basically, Jesus, Jesus is like, good job, Peter. You're not that smart. Right? Like even in this moment, good job, Peter. It's not about you. But then he reveals in this moment. He says, look, I'm going to say to you right now, Peter, which means rock, because that was why he gave that, that he went back to that, that name, what Peter means. Because upon this rock, the answer to the question of who is Jesus Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And again, you got to remember, this wasn't this is ecclesia. This isn't um, a building or a program or a system or an institution. He's like, I'm going to build the people of God. Like, I'm going to build, I'm going to launch this movement called the way. I'm going to launch the movement of the kingdom of God that brings in all of God's chosen people, the Jewish people, and brings in all the people that call upon the name of Jesus. I'm going to build my church, on the answer to the question of who am I? And I love what he says. And guess what? The gates of hell will not conquer it. Right? The gates of hell aren't going to stop it, guys. Nothing, basically, Jesus' way of saying nothing's going to stop it. I know that you're worried about a lot of things. Nothing's going to stop it. And guys, if there's any more reason to have the confidence and assurance, the faith that we have in Jesus Christ is to look at the last 2,000 years of the answer to this question of who is Jesus and to watch him build his church. Because nothing has stopped it. The Romans didn't stop it. The barbarians didn't stop it, right? The perversion of the Catholic church, even though it started off well, like that, that didn't seem to stop it right? The dark ages, the medieval times, all the weird mess that went on there, that didn't seem to stop it. The Muslims taking over Jerusalem and going after God's people, that didn't stop it. Guys, Hitler going after God's people didn't stop it. I went to the, I went to the Bible Museum tour that was here in Charlotte. I have yet to see it for myself in D.C., but the Bible Museum tour... When you go through it, if you get a chance to go through it, to see you go through this one section where literally you go through the section where Hitler and the Nazis did everything they could to wipe the existence of the Word of God off the face of the earth. And, and, and the Bible Museum has story after story after story, miracle after miracle after miracle, where God was like, hey, not going to happen. Why? Because it won't stop it. It's not going to stop it. Wars won't stop it. Guys, our governments can't stop it. No matter who's ruling stuff can't stop it. Woke culture can't stop it. Stupid progressive Christianity and all the whack stuff they believe, that's not going to stop it. 
Nothing is going to stop God from building his church, and he's going to consistently use his people, his children, as agents for the kingdom of God, as missionaries for the movement and kingdom of God where we live, work, and play to continue to show and humbly point everyone to the absolute hope that is Christ. And he goes on to say, you know, you're the salt and the life. You're the salt and the light of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of this movement. You're the salt that preserves it. You're the light that shines it out. And he says, when you do this, your good deeds, right? It's going to shine out for all to see. Why? So everybody will see that I, I brought something to the table? So that everybody sees how good I did this thing? So that everybody can tell that I, I knew the right answers, the right questions, the right problem, like because I knew it, because I did No. It, they're going to see, in humility, they're going to see this salt and life coming out of your life because he's going to increase and I'm going to decrease and it's going to be all about him. And they're going to praise your heavenly father in heaven. That's what's going to happen. I don't want you guys to struggle. Look, when I say this is the kind of faith that I want, this isn't just the kind of faith that I personally want. This is the kind of faith I want for you. This is the kind of faith I want for this church, for the people who call Journey Home. That we would, we would knock out this, this, this tension that doesn't need to exist between faith and works and all this you know, belief and knowledge. And, and we just understand that our response to God, this expression of, of, of the right standing that we've already been given with God, comes out in our life and it plays out in everything that we say and do. And what people see is humility, because we're always pointing to him. Because it doesn't matter what it is, but it's always going to be about him. That's the kind of faith that I want to see you get traction in this year. That I want to see you when, you, when you make those prayers at the beginning of the year, I want to grow in my faith, God, I want to grow in this thing. That's great. But that's the kind of faith I want you to grow in. Let's pray together. God, but we believe that you hear our prayers and we believe that you answer our prayers. And God, with the sincerity of every heart in this room and those who are watching online, God, I just pray that there would be a sincereness about their heart that says, God, we want, we want our lives to be more about you and less about us. You have to get greater and greater in order for us to stop struggling with the stuff that we struggle with and surrender ourselves more and more, become less and less about us so that we can see what James described. God, this beautiful picture of a, not just a body, but a body with life, with breath in it, that this is what it looks like when our trust in you works hand in hand with how we live our lives for you. God, answer that prayer today. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.